Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. As you practice, I think it's really important to be open-minded and the ability to change how you practice, which, you know, in some ways can be frustrating because you feel like, oh, a certain way has always been really good. Um, So if I really was hard, strong on doing it that way, and then I changed, maybe I wasn't doing the right way, Um, or just having to learn new things and new techniques and new therapies. But I also think it's really exciting because with medicine and dermatology in particular, we get a lot more options. There's always new products coming out, you know, new topicals, new pharmaceuticals, new preventions, new diagnostics. But there's so many different ways to perform diagnostics, to treat pets. It's not a really straightforward thing. All dermatologists kind of practice differently in how they manage things and, you know, and very successfully in different ways. But I just want to go over a few things that I've kind of, you know, thought about or changed over the last few years um, that I feel like um, has really just showed my evolution as a person that as I see more cases, I'm willing to try new things and do things differently. One in particular that I'll start with that may surprise you, and actually some of the members of my staff have kind of been commenting lately on something they've seen me do a little bit more, is yes, I, as a former person who said they hardly tape prep, has been tape prepping more. Now, I still historically do a lot more direct impression smears compared to tape prep, but I have been tape prepping a bit more in the last few months than I have in a super long time. And a lot of that I think has come down to have had a lot of pets flaring in the primary area I have been sampling are those interdigital spaces, especially in some of those dogs that are either one very sensitive, like you go to try to spread their toes apart to sample with a direct impression smear and they just donkey kick you. They're not comfortable. And especially as we're, you know, try to practice fear-free medicine, um, just trying to be open to ways that maybe is not as uncomfortable for them. If I don't feel like we're in a situation where we necessarily need to sedate, but they're just a bit weary of me actually collecting with a slide itself. Um, and also in some of those cases that are those kind of dry scaly cases that have the longer hair and it's really hard to get a sample of the true interdigital space, the tape, just cause it's more flexible, um, you know, can get down there a bit easier. Now I still, when actually evaluating a slide, prefer to look at direct impression smear. You know, one of the things I don't love about tape is it picks up a lot of skin cells and debris. And I've recently put a picture up of one of my tape preps from an interdigital space that had a decent amount of malassezia that I may have missed if I didn't tape prep, but it does have a lot of squames on it. A lot of the malassezia organisms look a little like ghost-like. You have to use the fine focus up and down, um, and you just have to read through more debris. That being said, in that particular situation, because the pet hated the paws being touched and was uncomfortable, it actually was the best situation and allowed me to make the diagnosis. So I still am not going to say tape prep's my favorite, but I have been using it more and more. You know, some of the dermatologists in our clinic have been successful with it and utilizing it. And I'm not that proud of a person. I'm always willing to try something different if I'm unable to successfully collect samples, um, like how 
I've been trying to collect them. Another thing I've changed a, a bit ago because I've talked about this on the podcast before, but just to kind of bring it up again, you know, I'm really, really trying to be proactive about my topical therapy, not necessarily just in cases who are actively flaring with uh, yeast or pyoderma, but as a way to control them in the interim. And I've done this with my own pets. Um, and I've done this with some cases, especially if they've broken out a lot, but even cases where they're doing well with, you know, certain pharmaceuticals, we'll talk about the importance of bathing and just being able to remove the pollens from the skin to restore that skin barrier. We've talked before about how there are studies out there that show, um, you know, especially with dogs, even if they look pretty good clinically, they can tell their skin barrier based on evaluating it, biopsying it, looking at it, that it's not normal. So trying to restore that skin a bit better with the use of certain topical products. So one, removing debris and pollens from the skin so they don't absorb them as well. But then two, using products that are actually going to be more beneficial scientifically to restore that. So, you know, for example, things like the Duxo S3 Calm, which has the highest level of Ophetrium. I like to use that as kind of my maintenance shampoo to help restore that skin barrier. And we know by restoring the skin barrier, you can actually help with things like the microbiome. So really helping restore that. So we hopefully get less infections in the future, but having them have options like chlorhexidine when they are flaring or that they can spot treat. So we can proactively get those infections under control, but I really actually tried to move away from chronic use of chlorhexidine if they don't need it. I certainly have some cases that are just kind of disasters and always live with some infection on their skin. So then we will just utilize chlorhexidine more chronically, but we know there's, there's studies that show chlorhexidine resistance happening with some of our pyoderma. So just trying to get a better handle of being thoughtful on that. There's also products like the Dermascent products that can be really helpful. Shampoos, mousses, spot-ons. There's the AtopiVet, um, which has a collar that I can actually place on dog or cat and it lasts for two months. And I've actually had a couple cats who don't like topicals are difficult to manage that the owners are totally happy to put that collar on. And actually it's been really helpful in some of those cases. They also have a spot on that can be used, you know, twice weekly to restore the skin barrier. So beyond my cases that are just scaly or have really obvious epidermal barrier abnormalities clinically, I've just been really more, upfront about talking about that as a maintenance strategy to lessen our pharmaceuticals and hopefully lessen those infections from happening. Just like I would want my proactive, not reactive treatment for allergies long-term using my topicals in that way too, can be super, super important. Um, a third thing I've really been trying to do more of, and again, we've talked about this a bit, but really having these conversations with owners more is the use of diets that can restore the skin, not necessarily for food allergy, but nutritionally helping their atopic dermatitis. So if we're not necessarily worried about a food allergy or we've kind of, you know, ruled out a food allergy and the owners are like, well, what do I feed now? If they're open to other options and want to change, then using some of those diets that can really restore the skin, kind of the same idea as the topical therapies, um, but just really, it kind of instructing owners why these diets are not necessarily going to rule out something like a food allergy, or we've already done that, but try, trying to restore the skin, especially if we don't want to do a lot of other things like topicals or supplements to restore that skin barrier. So some of the diets we've talked about in the past would be like the Hills Derm Complete is one that actually can help food allergy and environmental allergy. 
but it does help to restore the skin barrier, um, can reduce things like histamine and some mild pruritus in, in cases. They have the puppy formulation that you can utilize in those young dogs where maybe they don't want to do a huge workup. So maybe you're able to control, you know, both food or environmental allergies. Um, if they're not going to be referred to someone like a dermatologist for an intradermal allergy test or more thorough workup. There's also, you know, Purina DRM has been around for a while, which can help restore the skin barrier. And then Royal Canin has skin support. Um, and we know that potentially a new diet's on the horizon skin topic that should be released, um, that also can help restore the skin barrier. So just making sure that we are really thinking about, um, you know, these, those alternatives, those things that we can do to help restore the skin barrier. As we talk about allergies, it's often a lot of management, right? With certain, um, pharmaceuticals, which are amazing. And we use those every single day, but then also just being open to those other things, um, you know, that we really could utilize to help restore the skin. Um, another one, which again, this feeds a little bit off the topical, but I think has been really important, um, is that maintenance ear flushing. So not being afraid again, very similar to the shampoo, but not being afraid to tell owners that we can switch a different ear flush. So if we use something like a Triz product, we get through Pseudomonas, they're doing great. Um, we don't necessarily have to say, we'll just stay with a Triz product. First of all, we know a lot of those topicals because they're putting that product directly in the ear. Like the nozzle can get infected with certain bacteria. Um, so when the ear is doing well, it's not a bad idea to probably get a different bottle anyway, but just explaining to them the purpose. So for my maintenance ear flushes, I'm using you, I'm usually using something more like a ceruminolytic. So Duke's on my cellar. Um, Fedokinol has pH notics. Um, there's, you know, a, a few different options, but using those more to help remove debris, but not necessarily needing something antiseptic, but explaining to owners, you know, why we're doing that. Um, why we're utilizing those products, why it's appropriate to make a change and knowing we can always go back to antiseptics if we need to, if they flare in the future. The last thing I'm going to touch on, and these are just kind of things off the top of my head. There's plenty of things I've changed, right? I've added cool things in like Fovia, like we've talked about in the past. There's always new products that are coming out, but just on top of my head, some more kind of broad things that I've kind of changed. And, you know, just when I think about this topic or the things that come to mind, um, one of the last things I really, um, start to consider is fear-free. And I know we've talked about it. It's not necessarily something new because we have been, you know, I have been fear-free certified for a while, but just more and more the importance of it. And as the studies come out about caregiver burden and how uncomfortable these pets are for, you know, like example, it seems silly to be like, well, I'm tape crap because it's more comfortable for them. And sometimes, but that is a way to really practice fear-free, to put my own needs aside of being like, well, that's my preference and say, okay, well, what's best for this patient? What's more comfortable for them? And so fear-free is something that I've been doing for years, but really, really taking to heart of having that conversation with the owner, not being afraid to say, you know, I think that we should try trazodone and have them come back in a dog that's maybe more fearful. Or can we try gabapentin in a cat rather than, you know, pinning it down to poke it for a blood draw. Can we give you gabapentin and have you come back in a week as a drop off to get that lab work? You know, what's really the things I want versus need in this particular exam. And then just asking the owners. I think sometimes we get a little, you know, proud and, and just say, well, we know it's best. I'll just ask owners like, you know, your pet best, like, 
how do you think they're going to like being examined? And people are often very forthcoming, like, oh, this worked at a previous vet or, you know, this didn't work or I'm not really sure, you know, but I think they'd be nervous like doing this. Just really asking that question and giving them that permission to give me the information they have. Um, I just find for most people, it really opens them up. It really makes them happy to see that I appreciate the experience they have with their pet, that they do know their pet best. So though I have, we've utilized fear free for a while, there's just a really more appreciation of it, of that conversation. I can open up with the owner and not having to rush things, um, that maybe don't need to be rushed, getting their experience on things. So maybe I can avoid doing something we know does not work for that pet. So those are just a few things in a nutshell that really come to mind as far as, you know, being able to evolve, being able to have fun with medicine, to change, to try new things and see what works and doesn't work. Um, And then have situations where maybe you do need to change how you do things, ruffle your own feathers a little bit. I think in any aspect of medicine, we get the cool, new, exciting medications, the the cool new tests, but even just using what we've had for a while and using it in different ways or learning from others. I learn from the other dermatologists at my clinic all the time. I learn from general practitioners all the time when I get asked questions when I'm lecturing. And those are things that just make it exciting, that make it so we can learn from one another so that we can help more pets. Um, but also keep our own interest really peaked, right? I don't want to do the exact same thing for, you know, the next 30, 40 years. Like I can't imagine, you know, what if we didn't use all the therapies we've gotten in the last 30 years for derm, we'd, we'd only still have prednisone, which we still have to use, you know, on occasion, but we wouldn't even have cyclosporin. Like we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have cytopoint. So that's just the really cool aspect of it. And I hope you can see kind of the changes that I've made. And I'm sure if I re-recorded this in a year, there'd be more changes from what I do today. So I hope you are able to kind of write your own story, look at the things that maybe you want to experience a bit differently and implement that into your practice.